Our scripture reading this morning comes from Luke chapter 1, verses 46 through 55, and can be found on page 856 in your pew Bible. And Mary said, My soul magnifies the Lord, and my spirit rejoices in God my Savior, for he has looked on the humble estate of his servant. For behold, from now on all generations will call me blessed, for he who is mighty has done great things for me, and holy is his name. And his mercy is for those who fear him from generation to generation. He has shown strength with his arm. He has scattered the proud in the thoughts of their hearts. And he has brought down the mighty for their thrones and exalted those of humble estate. He has filled the hungry with good things and the rich he has sent away empty. He has helped his servant Israel in remembrance of his mercy as he spoke to our fathers, to Abraham and to his offspring forever. This is the word of the Lord. Again, my name is Bill Gorman. I'm the campus pastor here at the Brookside campus. Thanks for being with us this morning. And we're continuing uh, in our series on vices and virtue. And so we are going to be looking more in depth today at some of those. And want to pause, though, before we do and just take a moment to pray and ask for God to help us to understand where it is that we um, are perhaps falling prey to these various vices as well as ask Him to help us to grow in virtue. So let's do that and then we'll begin together. Father in heaven, thank you that you um, have given us the gift of the Holy Spirit who is able to... um, discern even the places where we can't understand our, ourselves. So help make ourselves known to us um, that we might become the people that you want us to be. Pray for conviction of sin as well as for encouragement and hope and conformity to your will. I pray that for myself as well as for each one here. In Jesus' name and for his glory, amen. Well, this week I read a fascinating uh, op-ed piece in the New York Times uh, titled, Don't Let Facebook Make You Miserable. And the author of the article, Seth Stephen Davidovitz, is an economist, and he highlights the difference between the life that we live and portray on social media and the life that we actually live in reality. And he used the tools of big data research to confirm what I think we have all probably intuited on our own already that the lives that we portray on social media and the lives that we actually live are often very different. Uh, So, for example, he points out that in the real world, the National Enquirer magazine, uh, which is, you know, of course, a sensational tabloid, uh, is three times as popular. It sells three times as many copies as The Atlantic, which is a a thoughtful, long-form journalistic magazine. Uh, However, on Facebook, The Atlantic is 45 times more popular. Uh, Another telling example has to do with music preference. So according to the music service uh, Spotify, men and women have very similar music tastes. But on Facebook, men tend to downplay their interests in artists that are considered more feminine. He points out on Spotify, Katy Perry was the 10th most listened to artist among men, beating Bob Marley, Kanye West, Kendrick Lamar, Wiz Khalifa. But those other artists all have more male likes on Facebook. You see, we carefully curate what we post on Facebook or social media, but our Google searches reveal who we really are. He writes, alone with a screen and anonymous, people tend to tell Google things they don't reveal to social media. 
They even tell Google things they don't tell anyone else. Google offers digital truth serum. The words we type there are more honest than the pictures we present on Facebook or Instagram. So, for example, he, he talks about in the article, he says, on social media, the top descriptors to complete the phrase, my husband is, on social media, that phrase is included, my husband is the best, my best friend, amazing, the greatest, and so cute. On Google, one of the top five, way, five ways to complete the phrase, my husband is, is also amazing, so that checks out. But the other four are, my husband is a jerk, annoying, gay, and mean. So he concludes the article by offering an update to the old self-help mantra that went, don't compare your insides to other people's outsides. And he says, today we perhaps should say, don't compare your Google searches with other people's Facebook posts. But why the gap? What's at the root of why our Google searches are often so different from our Facebook posts? And I want to suggest to you this morning that at the root of this is often the overlooked and misunderstood vice of vainglory. The vice of vainglory. Rebecca DeYoung, in her incredibly helpful and also painfully convicting book, Vainglory, the Forgotten Vice, defines vainglory as being overly attached to how we appear to others and are acknowledged and approved by them. Being overly attached to how we appear to others and are acknowledged by them. We are in the middle of this series exploring vices and virtues, spending time looking at vices. It's sort of like spending time on WebMD, sort of a WebMD for the soul. It's where we sort of begin to see what are the, the diseases that are connected to the symptoms that we're seeing in our lives. We're able to look at what ails us and connect those symptoms with underlying spiritual disease and disordered love. And the virtues, on the other hand, they give us a picture of what health looks like. And the disciplines, the spiritual practices that we've been talking about with these virtues and vices are, are like the diet and exercise routines that help us move away from just taking aspirin for the symptoms and begin to truly treat the disease, moving us to wholeness, to virtue. And as with any disease, getting the right diagnosis is vital. And vainglory is one disease that is often overlooked and misunderstood. In fact, many lists of the seven deadly sins don't even include it. Uh, they include pride instead. Um, but when you go further back into the tradition of how we've talked about the vices or the deadly sins, really pride is seen to be sort of the trunk of the tree from which these different vices grow. It underlies all of them. The pride and vainglory are, are different. You see, pride wants to be better than others. Vainglory is concerned with looking better than others, whether it is or not. You see, pride is not satisfied unless it is truly better than someone else. Vainglory will happily settle to appear better. It lives for and is in the end the slave to the applause and approval of the crowd. 
Rebecca DeYoung puts it this way. She says, the proud person wants to be the director of the best show ever produced, but the glory seeker will happily sink to new depths of shallow sensationalism as long as the ratings will be high. So the question for us this morning as we contemplate this vice of vainglory is, are we more concerned with looking good or with actually being good? Is our greatest concern actually being a good person or just portraying a good image? Do we want to just project the right image to the world or do we want to become the right kind of person? Understanding vainglory is key to assessing where we're at with this question. This morning we're going to look at two biblical examples. One that shows us the danger of vainglory, the other the beauty and freedom of humility of true self-forgetfulness. You see, vainglory is what happens when we live for the applause of the wrong audience. You see, we were and are created for glory, each and every one of us. We are made in God's image, in His likeness, to display His glory to the world. We are glorious. We were made to display God's glory. Psalm 8 tells us that we were made a little lower than the angels. We were made glorious. But that glory goes wrong when we seek it from the wrong audience or for the wrong reasons. So glory becomes vain. It becomes empty. It goes wrong when it's sought from the wrong audience or for the wrong reasons. You see, glory is good. It's what we were made for. But when it becomes empty, that's what vanity means, vain, lacking substance, then it distorts what we were truly made to be. So when I think about vainglory in the sense, I think about, um, I think about a Cadbury cream egg. If you've ever had a Cadbury cream egg, or maybe you had one around Easter, and you've kind of held it in your hand, and it's wrapped in that beautiful foil wrapper, and you slowly unpeel it, and you reveal that milk chocolate eggshell, and you take that first wonderful bite. But imagine if as you take that first wonderful bite, instead of having that wonderful cream filling, the, the chocolate shell just kind of crumbles and there's nothing inside. The horror of that. That's vainglory. It was showing off that it was this glorious Cadbury cream egg, but on the inside there was no cream, there was no substance. A, 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 a true cream egg is glorious, but an empty one is vainglorious. Uh, the story of, of Ananias and Sapphira in the book of Acts is a, is a chilling picture of this. The book of Acts picks up the story where the Gospels leave off. So Jesus in the Gospels, we see his life unfold from birth to his death and resurrection and his ascension back to, into heaven to be with the Father. And in the book of Acts, we begin to see the unfolding of this thing that Jesus promised that he would build, the local church. And there's a couple, Ananias and Sapphira, who are a part of this early church. And the book of Acts tells us that many people in that time were selling their possessions, their property, and giving the proceeds of that to the church to help those in need. It was a good and glorious thing. But it was a hard thing, a costly thing, something that required some 
true goodness and virtue to do. You see, Ananias and Sapphira, as they wanted to look good without the cost of actually being good. And here's what happens. Acts chapter 5. But a man named Ananias with his wife, Sapphira, sold a piece of property. With his wife's knowledge, he kept back for himself some of the proceeds and brought only a part of it and laid it before the apostles' feet. But Peter said, Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit and to keep back for yourself part of the proceeds of the land? While it remained unsold, did it not remain your own? And after it was sold, was it not at your disposal? Why is it that you have contrived this deed in your heart? You have not lied to man, but to God. When Ananias heard these words, he fell down and breathed his last. And great fear came upon all who heard of it. They wanted to portray themselves as having given it all when only they gave a portion. They could have just given a portion. But they wanted to appear as though they had given it all. You see, vainglory grows in the soils of arrogance and also in the soils of insecurity. That's where it grows best. And when it grows out of arrogance, vainglory comes from a desire to be noticed, to be given credit, to be applauded because you think that you are good, that you, you should be acknowledged for the, the, the accomplishments, that you want the attention for what you've done. So for example, on Monday, this, this Monday of this week, uh, I was with, uh, in a meeting with some of our other campus pastors, and every Monday afternoon we gathered together to check base and um, just touch base and check in on how things are going. And um, we also take some time during that meeting just to share stories of how we've seen God at work in the life of the congregation and our church over the past week. What, what, where, how have we seen God at work? And someone told a story about how a family had come to one of our campuses because they had received the Easter mailer postcard that we send out to the homes that are near our church buildings. And it was noted in the team that, oh, we should make sure to let our communications team know and thank them for their good work, that they designed this beautiful postcard and that people had received it and it could come as a result. And in that moment, I had to stifle the urge to mention that, that well, I was the one who wrote the copy, the, the text that was on that, that postcard. I mean, it wasn't a great moment. I didn't say anything, but I, I had this, I had to stifle that desire to get some of the glory to be acknowledged. You see, but our vainglory can also be rooted not just in kind of an arrogance of wanting acknowledgement, but also in an insecurity. And actually, when I think about how vainglory has manifested itself in my own life, most often, I think it's far more often rooted in insecurity We have a particular image we want to project to the world about who we are because we're afraid of what people would think if they knew who we really are. And so we puff ourselves up, we exaggerate, we make ourselves look better than we really are, we lie on a resume, we massage the truth, all because we are deeply afraid that people will find out that we're not really as good as we appear. Vainglory is driving us to keep that appearance up. And regardless of whether it's growing in the soil of arrogance or the soil of insecurity, vainglory invariably makes us hypocrites. 
because we're putting up a front that, that doesn't match the reality. And Jesus points this out in Matthew chapter 6, verse 1, and we spent about a year looking together at the Gospel of Matthew. Some of you may remember spending time in the Sermon on the Mount together where Jesus says in Matthew chapter 6, verse 1, beware of practicing your righteousness before other people in order to be seen by them. For then you will have no reward from your Father who is in heaven. You see, when you are interested in only or primarily projecting the right image rather than being the right kind of person, you will become a hypocrite. It's only a matter of time. But not only does vainglory make us hypocrites, it also isolates us. And this hit me afresh and really hard this week. I hadn't thought about this aspect of what vainglory does. It leads us into isolation because when we are always trying to keep up appearances, we can't let anyone else really know us. This often happens in the context of the church community. We want to portray a person, a, a, a a facade or an image of how our lives really are. But that means we can't let anyone really know us. It takes us to the point where the only place that we really tell the truth is the Google search box. And it hit me for the first time this week that it is vainglory that perhaps more often than anything else keeps me from letting people in to truly know me. Listen again to philosopher Rebecca DeYoung. She writes, it's ironic that the art of impressing others and gaining applause involves carefully hiding ourselves just as much as it involves showing ourselves off. Vainglory is a cheap substitute for true fulfillment of the human desire to be profoundly known by another person, to be known by name for who one truly is and to be loved just that way. So whose applause are you living for? Whose applause are you living for? I encourage you to spend some time today or this week thinking about that question. Whose approval matters most to me? Maybe if you're you're struggling to try to think through those terms, maybe flip the question around. Think about it negatively. Whose criticism or disapproval hurts the most? Are you living for the approval of your children, for your parents, your boss, your friends, your teacher, classmates at school, people on the team, the in-group at the office or at school, your spouse, your boyfriend, your ex-girlfriend? See, we will never escape the vice of vainglory until we begin living before the right audience. See, only when living before an audience of one, God himself, will you be able to loosen the shackles that bind you to the applause of so many lesser audiences. And there's a woman in the New Testament who beautifully embodies this idea of living before an audience of one, who provides us with an example of the joy that comes in life, and a life that is free from vainglory, and she displays the virtue of humility. And her name is Mary, the mother of Jesus. I think oftentimes in 
Protestant circles and the Protestant tradition of which Christ community is certainly a part of, um, we've tended to downplay Mary because of um, sometimes the inordinate role that she's been given in, in Roman Catholic theology. But we're diminished when we don't look carefully at Mary's wonderful example of, of humility. And we see this in Mary's song, and sometimes called the, the Magnificat, that uh, Annalyn read for us just a moment ago. And Mary, in that moment, she had just been told by the angel not long ago that she, an unmarried virgin, would give birth to the Son of God. She's going to play an incredibly pivotal role in the grand story of redemption that God has been writing for thousands of years, and now she's going to be right in the center of it. And yet she doesn't become puffed up or, or seek the applause of others or boast in her position. Rather, she turns all the glory back to its source. My soul magnifies the Lord, she says. My spirit rejoices in God, my Savior, for he has looked on, my, on the humble estate of my, his servant. And she acknowledges that in and of herself, she's nothing special, but just she has a glory that comes from God himself, and she rejoices in him and gives glory and attention and honor and praise to him. Uh, Rebecca Young explains that people who are truly humble, who have substance, who aren't empty, who truly are glorious, invariably point others to God, the one from whom their glory comes. She writes, they radiate God's beauty and goodness in the world, drawing others to that glory a glory that transcends the person and his or her act. When others witness these acts, their attention is elevated above the one acting and is ushered momentarily into the cathedral of God's presence. What an incredible thing that must be. And I remember having an experience very much like that, hearing a friend, a good friend, uh, preach in chapel when I was in seminary. And he was such a gifted preacher and yet embodied this so beautifully that as I sat there and listened, I just marveled at how God was using him in that moment. It was true glory. It wasn't empty. So whose glory are you seeking to display? Your own or the one who made you? You see, when we have the right audience, we are able to stop hiding and also free to be who we were created to be. And when you're being who you really are, who you really were created to be for the right audience, there is glory on display, but it isn't vain. It's real, it's substantive, and it leads people into an experience of the one who made you. One of the many metaphors that's used in the New Testament to describe Christians is that they are ambassadors for Christ. Ambassadors displaying His glory, His goodness to the world in and through our good works so that people are attracted to Him. This is why Jesus can say in the same sermon, in the Sermon on the Mount, in Matthew chapter 5, verse 16, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. And also, just a few verses later in Matthew 6, 1, beware of practicing your righteousness before other people in order to be seen by them. For then you will have no reward from your Father who is in heaven. It's all a matter of who is getting the glory. 
you or your Father in heaven. So what's the path then from the vice of vainglory to the virtue of humility? Let me just warn you from the outset here, it's an incredibly difficult journey. Why? Because any progress in moving from vainglory to humility can become another opportunity for vainglory. Because you begin to have the thoughts, I wonder if people have noticed that I'm less vainglorious. (laughs) I wonder if they've noticed that I've been growing in humility lately. And it's even hard to talk about vainglorious, vainglory without slipping into being vainglorious, right? Because take my example from earlier about desiring to, to make known my involvement in the creation of the Easter postcard. I mean, aren't you impressed that even though I had those feelings, I recognized them as vainglory and repented of them? I mean, I'm a pretty good pastor in person, right? I mean, I can sin and repent like a boss. This is the problem with vainglory. The, the moment that we, we see we're beginning to, to grow and being less of it, it can become a moment of, oh, I, yeah, that's right. I'm, I am growing in this. And C.S. Lewis captures this struggle perfectly in his book, The Screw Tape Letters, which imagines a, a conversation between two demons that are strategizing how to get their, their patient, a new Christian, to stumble in his faith. And just listen to what Lewis writes here. Your patient has become humble. Have you drawn his attention to the fact? All virtues are less formidable to us once the man is aware that he has them, but this is especially true of humility. Catch him at the moment when he is really poor in spirit and smuggle into his mind the gratifying reflection. By Jove, I'm being humble. And almost immediately pride, pride at his own humility will appear. If he awakens to the danger and tries to smother this new form of pride, make him proud of his attempt, and so on, through as many stages as you please. Thankfully, Jesus shows us a primary pathway to escaping vainglory. It's what's been called the discipline of secrecy. That is, of fleeing the spotlight, of getting out of the spotlight. Listen to the words of Jesus later on in Matthew chapter 6. And when you pray, you must not be like the hypocrites, for they love to stand and pray in the synagogues and at the street corners that they may be seen by others. Truly, I say to you, they have received their reward. But when you pray, go into your room and shut the door and pray to your Father who is in secret. And your Father who sees in secret will reward you. Your Father who is in secret sees in secret and He will reward you. This is the spiritual discipline of secrecy, of fleeing the spotlight. Philosopher Dallas Willard writes, in the discipline of secrecy, we abstain from causing our good deeds and qualities to be known, to help us lose or tame the hunger for fame, justification, or just the attention of others. And he continues, one of the greatest fallacies of our faith and actually one of the greatest acts of unbelief is the thought that our spiritual acts and virtues need to be advertised to be known. Secrecy rightly practice enables us to place our public relations department entirely into the hands of God. 
We allow him to decide when our deeds will be known and when our light will be noticed. Secrecy at its best teaches love and humility before God and others. And there are a number of ways that we can practice this discipline of, of secrecy. One way is through silence. The discipline of silence is simply abstaining from talking. And it, it may mean taking a silent retreat, actually going away for an afternoon or for a whole day or even a weekend and, and truly not speaking at all to anyone. But it can also look like just choosing to consciously not talk about yourself to others. Or not talking about yourself to yourself. So much of vainglory happens in the midst of our own self-talk. What would it look like for you to be silent on social media, perhaps, for a time? For a day? For a week, even? Sherry Turkle, in her outstanding book, Reclaiming Conversation, points out that, that social media, in particular, has a way of shaping us towards, she doesn't use this language, but truly toward vainglory toward a broadcast mentality. Listen to what she writes. She says, social media, instead of promoting the value of authenticity, encourages performance. Instead of teaching the rewards of vulnerability, it suggests that you put on your best face. And instead of learning how to listen, you learn what goes into an effective broadcast. See, silence, it frees us from that broadcast mentality. Another discipline closely related to, to silence and, and secrecy is solitude. And solitude works by depriving ourselves of an audience because you see, vainglory needs an audience. An audience is to vainglory what oxygen is to a fire. If you take the oxygen out, the fire disappears. If you remove the audience, vainglory begins to wither and die. See, when we're alone, by ourselves, not posting or tweeting or talking or performing, we deprive ourselves of the audience that vainglory must have in order to survive. Rebecca DeYoung observes, without an audience, you don't have to work at getting attention from anyone. No performance is needed. No one is watching. You can just be yourself. And she points out that if all you have become is a performer, an actor, anticipating, reacting to what your audience demands, the emptiness of that self will quickly be exposed in solitude. And finally, I'm not sure if this is an actually sort of an official spiritual discipline you'll find anywhere in the writings of the great church fathers, but it does undermine vainglory, and that is self-deprecation. Specifically, just being able to laugh at yourself and letting others laugh with you at yourself. Because vainglory can never laugh at itself. Humility, though, on the other hand, is always quick to laugh at itself because it knows, the truly humble person knows, it isn't about them anyway. They don't have to have the approval of the crowd. They can laugh together about the oddities and the failures and the foibles of life. Because they already have the approval and honor of the one who has loved them and given, themselves, given himself for them in the gospel. Because as with all the vices, it is the gospel that ultimately destroys them. The good news that you are already fully known, loved, and accepted removes the need for any kind of vainglory. 
Rebecca DeYoung points out that what the vainglorious ultimately need is a secure sense that they are already fully known and unconditionally loved. They need to know that such knowledge and love are a gift. And most importantly, they need to trust that they have already been given that gift. And that is the good news of the gospel, that you have been given the gift of being fully known and unconditionally loved by Jesus in the gospel. Even though you and every single one of us have turned away from God, has sinned and rebelled against the only one who can save you, yet he has continued to pursue you even when you flee from him. That he died to redeem you from slavery to sin, to wash away your guilt, to justify you, to declare you innocent, to adopt you into his family, to make you new. All of these things are given to you freely in the gospel. So you don't have to hide. You don't have to put up a front any longer. Do you believe with every fiber of your being that you have that gift? The gift of being fully known and fully loved by the one who made you and who gave himself for you. You see, Jesus stands with open arms longing to give that gift to you. Have you received it? Will you receive it? Will you believe it? Because the extent to which you do receive and believe it is to the extent that you will finally be free of vainglory and grow into a truly substantive, humble, virtuous person. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we are so grateful that you have loved us and given yourself for us and that you know us, you know us better than we know ourselves and you love us. Would that love and the knowledge of the forgiveness of our sins, even the ugliest and darkest and most entrenched, free us to be self-forgetful and to grow in a true substance of humble glory that points others to you. In Jesus' name, amen.